Good morning. So glad to see all of you here today. I, I love the these testimonies of these NFL guys because they don't have to do that. But yet there's something within their heart that says, if I'm not serving others, I'm missing the point of what it means to be a Christian. That's what this whole series in James has been about. It's been about, if I call myself a Christian, am I truly living it out? We have a word for that posture that they were taking there as they talked about serving others. And that posture is humility. That posture is, let me put myself second and put somebody else first and see what God can do. There's a quote that I love, and uh, I was corrected this week. I thought it was by C.S. Lewis, but I found out that everything you read on the internet is not actually true. (laughs) Who knew? But I like the quote anyway. It's not by C.S. Lewis, but it says this, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So let me say that again, if your brain's still processing it. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility, which we're going to talk about today, is the posture that we take before God and before others so that we can do what we are all called to do, to love God, to love others, to help people find and follow Jesus. That's what the people in Jerusalem were doing as James is writing this letter to these churches that have been scattered. They're they're trying to figure out how do we love God and how do we love others. And James is really straightforward with them in so many ways. And one of the ways that he's going to be straightforward with them is to say humility has to be the posture that we take if we want to reflect the gospel. He's reminding them that if we're Christians, it means we're supposed to be reflecting Christ, right? Christians means that we follow after him, that we reflect him. So as we look at James, I just want to remind you, he's the younger brother of Jesus, younger brother who absolutely denied Jesus's divinity and didn't want to have anything to do with him in that context until he saw the risen Savior. And he realized that everything that Jesus said was true and his life was completely transformed. Then he goes on to lead the church in Jerusalem where it all started and where it's the epicenter of persecution. People are being scattered all over the place, but yet he holds steady there to build this church. So James is in the middle of all of this here, and I don't want you to lose the context here, because when we think of church, the main way that church grows in our lifetime, since you and I have been alive, is mainly by this. We run into somebody, it's our neighbor, it's the person we work with or whatever, and we say, hey, would you like to come to my church next weekend? Which is great, and I hope that you all do that. You know, I'll give you, I'll give you a little side note secret here. We can double the church in one week simply by bringing somebody with us next week, right? In our lifetime though, that's how the church has mainly grown, whatever church it may be. Hey, would you like to come to church with me? In James' context here, as we read this letter, you didn't do that. You didn't go up to somebody and say, hey, you want to come to church with me? Because you were absolutely risking your life to be a part of the church in this context. Many of you may be code, their gang sign, if you will, back in those days when they were a Christian, because what they would do, because you couldn't just outright say it, is they would draw half of it in the dirt with their foot. And if the other person completed the other half of it, making the fish symbol, they knew, okay, 
It's safe for us to talk. We can both talk about being Christians. And, and so they were, I, I just want to tell you all that to help you understand. They were, they were undercover. And um, they had to. They absolutely had to authenticate what they believed by the way that they lived. Because if they, they, they didn't have this thing that you and I can have today where we say we believe it, but we don't really live it. That would have caused a huge problem. And that's what James is trying to address here. And even though you and I live in a different culture where if we want to, we can show up here on Sunday morning, we can clap our hands and sing a song, listen to a sermon, walk out of here, and never live it at all, the truth is still the same. Because as the kingdom of God grows, in order for it to grow, the people around you and around me, they need to see that it's authentic by the way that you and I live, the words that we speak. And that is what James is getting at here as he talks about us truly living this out. He's saying that there must be some consistency in the way that we live our life and what our faith says. And so he's been taking on these different topics. James is a great book because it it really hits home on a lot of the things. This is how we should live. And he kind of takes different chunks. He's going to talk about wisdom and he's going to talk about prayer. And today he's going to talk a lot about humility and this posture that we need to take. You even heard in that opening video, the humility that those guys expressed, you would be much more open to hearing about their faith after seeing and hearing that humility, then somebody who is just absolutely boastful and arrogant, we would turn them off, right? And so James is going to hit home with this. He's saying, if you want people to see and hear the transformation that has happened within you, humility must be one of the characteristics that is a trademark of our lives. And when he was writing this letter, this really separated Christianity from all other beliefs that were in the culture at that time. I mean, if we look back at Greek philosophy or Roman historians, they weren't pushing for people to live humble lives. As a matter of fact, this probably would have been looked down on. It was very much a culture of power and dominance. But Jesus comes along and he emphasizes humility. Jesus teaches a new way of thinking. It's very much upside down. It's a foreign concept to many as the church spreads at that time, but Jesus was really just building off of what had happened since the beginning of time, all the way back into the Old Testament, where God tells us, this is how you're supposed to live. It didn't just start with Jesus, but Jesus brings this to culture. But if we go all the way back to Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, it says this, No, O people... The Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so Jesus knew this, and this is the kind of life that he goes on to exemplify, and he goes on to teach us, and then James is going to go on to echo as well. We see with Jesus... Matthew eleven twenty nine. he says this, Take my yoke upon you and let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is one of the only places where I could find that Jesus describes himself. 
Some of you Bible scholars may have some other references for me. Other than metaphors, right? Where he says like, you know, I, I am the gate. I am the bread of life. But just a general description of himself. This is one of the only places I can find it. He says, I am humble and gentle at heart. We see him reference this in other ways. In Matthew 18, he says, if you want to become great, you need to become like a child. You need to humble yourself. In John 13, he says, I'm going to give you an example of this, right? He says, he literally says, I leave you an example. And he washes the disciples' feet. He takes the posture of the lowliest of servants and washes the disciples' feet, exemplifying humility for us all. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus brings this kingdom and he turns it upside down. He says, if you truly want to understand what the kingdom of God is about and you want to live it, it starts the other way around than what we think. And even here in our culture today, that applies, right? I mean, you got to look out for number one. You got to do what's best for you, right? That's the mentality of our culture. And even if we weave that in with our, we can make it really spiritual, right? I mean, we can, we can weave that in with our faith and just say, I got to look out for me. But Jesus says it's the other way around. We put others above ourselves. Paul even says this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Now, we can collectively sit here in this room today. Uh, I don't know where you're at in your faith. I assume a lot of you may be believers. But even if you're not a believer and you're just searching here today because you're trying to see what this is all about, we can all look at that and go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense that we should live that way. But then actually living that way, it's a, it's a bigger challenge. And that's what James is getting at here. It can't just be words that we say. We have to be humble. And humble means we change the way we think. We change the words we say. We change the actions that we take. We take a posture of humility. Now, humility can be a tough thing to diagnose, right? I mean, we'll just take a poll here real quick. How many of you are probably the most humble person you know? I do see some hands, and they, ironically, every hand I saw was from the band. <laughs> I don't know why that is, but, I mean, if you say you're the most humble person, you know, I mean, you know, you guys see what I'm saying here, right? Humility can be kind of hard to diagnose, but James is going to bring us to account today, again, saying, if we are followers of Christ, if we are Christians, then we are imitators of Christ, that we are to live and walk in the humility that Jesus lived and walked in. The humility that he interacted with others with is the humility that we are to interact with others with. It should be a characteristic of our lives. Now, again, I want to say, we've kind of brought this up with James, and I want to say it again. James is very much not a book about salvation. Because he's talking about you should do this and you should do that. And he's talking about the way that we should live our lives, sanctification. In other words, now that you have put your faith in Christ, you should live this way 
which causes, as it says in John 3.30, for us to decrease so that Christ might increase. Right? So if you've been following Christ for a month or you've been following Christ for 80 years, God is still working on all those details in our lives, sanding out the rough edges. And that is what James is talking about. So as he talks about humility, he's not saying, if you're humble enough, then maybe you'll get to heaven. Maybe you'll be saved. No, he's saying, now that you have put your faith in Christ, here is how we are to live. So I'm going to read you a whole chunk of the scripture today to give us kind of of a 30,000 foot view. And then we're going to jump into some points about how we live this out. I'm even going to pick up on the tail end of James chapter three, and then we're going to go into James chapter four. So James 3, 13, if you are wise and understand God's ways, remember we talked about wisdom, meaning we understand God's will. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life doing good works with humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover it up. Don't cover up the truth by boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. So James is painting this picture of this is what humility looks like. And then he's going to go on and talk about putting this into action or not. He begins in verse 1 of chapter 4. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy with God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you see that the scriptures, do you think that the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he, gra- he gives grace, he grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. 
Now, I can't tell you for sure, but I think James was in a little bit of a bad mood when he was writing all this. I think maybe he had had enough of whatever was going on, and he just got to the point where he said, ah, that's it, I'm writing a letter. I mean, it's like sending that email, right? I'm going to type it up, and I'm going to hit send. And James is saying, that's enough. You guys are compromising enough. You're calling yourself Christians, but you're letting all these little things come into your life that are distracting people from who Christ really is, and they aren't able to see Christ within you. There's a common theme besides humility on the other side of that that we see over and over in this first section. And the Greek word for this theme that we see here refers to ambition, our motives, our plans. He talks about those. And every time it's used in this Greek sense, it's used in a selfish manner. All right. So it's a selfish ambition. Uh, and ambition isn't necessarily bad, right? I mean, even Paul talks about, hey, I press towards the goal. He's got a goal that he is aiming for, that he feels like God has put within his heart. Even Jesus has ambition. I have come to seek and save the lost. He knows what the mission is and what he's called to do, and he's moving towards that. But this particular word, Erethea shows up seven times in this section, and each time it is negative, translated as selfish ambition. He also talks about desires and wants, and this Greek word is the same word that we get our word for hedonism for, right? Just seeking after pleasure. So he talks about the desires and the wants within us. And again, it's always in the selfish context, and it's always in a negative context. If you take this same word and you take it back to the Old Testament uh, and you put it in, in Hebrew, we see this word come up with Adam and Eve when she desires the apple, and then we have the fall of man, right? Sin enters the world. We see it again with Cain and Abel when the first murder takes place. We see it with Joseph's brothers when they desire the favor that Joseph had, so they throw him in a pit so that he can be sold into slavery. We see it with Saul when he desires the spoils of war to the point where he chooses to disobey God. We also see it when David desires Bathsheba and has an affair with her. We see it in the Ten Commandments when it says, do not covet. So this is the word here as we talk about our selfish ambitions and our desires and our wants, he's addressing these in a negative manner. And he's saying that we need to get those in check. These are at the other end of the spectrum of humility because one says, it's about me and what I want. The other side, humility says, why don't you go first, right? I'm going to put myself second and let you take the lead. He continues in verse 13 of chapter 4. He says, look here. You who say today or tomorrow, we're going to go to a certain town and we will stay there a year. We will do business and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like a morning fog. We all experience that today. It's here for a little while and then it's gone. And we all hope it's gone after church. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and we will do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans 
and such boasting is evil. Now, we all live this way. We all make plans. We all have schedules, right? We, we have technology. You can do it on paper or you can do it digitally. We can put together goals and we can put together our calendar. He's not saying that any of that is bad. He's saying what's bad is when you take God out of the equation and you are living by your own plans, your own selfish ambition. He's saying you don't know if you're going to have the opportunity to do that or not. He's asking if God is at the heart of all of our plans. So as we look at the posture of humility today, how can we really live this out? There's four areas that I want us to look at so that we can take on truly that posture of humility as James is challenging us to live this out. The first one is humility towards authority. Now, for some of you, that already puts up a defensive posture because you think authority, you know, I, I don't want to listen to that. And I want to give you a different perspective of it. Here's what I want us to look at this in. I want you to substitute, if authority is an issue for you, substitute authority for truth. All right? So we're not talking about people of power necessarily. We're talking about what is true, speaking to our lives. Truth and what is wise um, isn't that hard to understand, but sometimes we have a natural inclination to resist that authority in our lives. It may be true, but I don't want to hear it, right? I mean, sometimes whatever we're going through in life or whatever it is that our selfish desires are striving for, we don't want to hear what is true, so we naturally resist it. So, We're going to contrast a wise person and a foolish person. Let me break it down like this. A wise person hears the truth and adjusts their behavior to the truth. So truth is the authority that we're talking about here. When a wise person hears the truth, we adjust our behavior. God, I need to stop doing this. I need to start doing that in my life. I adjust my behavior by the truth that I hear, right? Listen, if you don't change the oil in that car, eventually you're going to ruin your engine. So you think, okay, yeah, I need to change the oil in my car. I go take it for an oil change, and I didn't ruin my engine. You heard the truth. You responded to it with your behavior because that we have wisdom. Wisdom is not the amount of information you have. It's what you do with the information that you have. Right? Wisdom is not intelligence. Right, I know a whole lot of stuff. Wisdom is how I respond to truth. I see that this is true, whether it's God's, thing, you know, God's will spoken to my life or maybe just simple truths that we have in life. How I respond to that truth in my life is wisdom. Right? If you don't change your diet, you go to the doctor and he says, listen, if you don't change your diet, you're going to have a heart attack before age 50, right? That's one of those things that people have so much trouble with, right? When the doctor says to change and you think, oh, I just can't do it. But let's say, you know, you say, you walk out of the doctor's office and you say, okay, I'm going to start drinking some water. I'm actually going to eat some vegetables and salad. I'm going to cut out the daily double donut burger diet that I have in my life. Yeah, I know. Okay. If when that picture came on, your mouth salivated and your stomach rumbled, you might need to listen to this one, all right? 
Wisdom is if I hear the truth and then I respond to it, I am wise, right? You tell your child, hey, listen, if you don't get your homework done, you are going to fail math class. And they say, yes, dear mother, I want to do all my homework. Please take the remote control from my hands. They do their homework. They pass their class. That is wisdom. Because you heard something that was true and you responded to the truth. The Bible says the opposite of that is foolishness. A foolish person hears the truth and adjusts the truth to justify their behavior. A foolish person hears the truth, but adjusts the truth to justify their behavior. We can be really good at this, right? If you don't change the oil in your car, your engine is going to blow up. That check engine light's been on for three years. I don't need to change it, right? And boom, right? If you don't change your diet, you're going to have a heart attack before age 50. Uh, I feel fine, right? It's not going to phase me. Boom. If you don't do your homework, you're going to fail math class. Ah, The teacher never checks, right? Boom. When we adjust the truth with the reasoning that we have and the excuses we have, then that is what the Bible calls being a fool. Humility recognizes the authority, the truth that is given to us and responds to that. But we can be really sophisticated, can't we, in adjusting the truth to justify our selfish ambitions. We need to ask ourselves, is there humility in my life to respond to the truth that I am given? Or am I just my own judge and jury? The theme song of my life, I did it my way. Right? That's foolishness. The second area where we can take a posture of humility, is humility towards others. As James starts in chapter 4, it's in the context of this relationship that we have with one another and you guys have with each other. And he's saying, hey, hey, why are you guys fighting with each other? Right? You guys need to cut that out. You want this and he has that. You're jealous about that. And so you're getting in these arguments. You've got divisions between you. Right? You're cutting off relationships all because this strife is coming in. We need to ask ourselves if there's quarrels and fights among us like James talks about. Are my relationships predominantly characterized by peace or by strife for your, for your life? Are your relationships, is there more peace in there or is there more strife in there? If there's more strife, we need to look at the humility within our lives. James points this out, that a lack of humility causes strife. There's a selfishness there. When one selfish agenda meets another selfish agenda, and we try to put those together in a relationship, there's going to be problems. There's going to be tensions there. It takes a lot of courage to examine ourselves in this area, because none of us want to be that foolish person in this area but maybe you need to look at yourself honestly. Maybe you need to go to somebody in your life who is full of the peace of God and just say, is there a lot of drama here? You know, and be willing to listen to 
the answer. It could be that you have a lack of humility in your relationships. He goes on and says there needs to be a lack of humility towards God. He does this talking in the context of sin. When there's sin in our lives, there's a lack of humility towards God. James 4.4 says this, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world makes you an enemy with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Selfish plans, selfish ambitions, selfish desires... Now, when I first saw this, this scripture in James 4, 4, he starts with this phrase, you adulterous people, which is really harsh in his, the context of his writing, but he just lays it out there. To me, I almost thought a better word that he could have used if I was correcting James might have been idolatrous, right? Because they're putting these other things in front of God, right? They're putting their plans in front of God's plans. But James knew exactly what he was doing when he said adulterous Because this is all in the context of a relationship with God. It's not about just doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. Humility with God is understanding it's a relationship that God desires with you. God isn't just looking to improve your behavior. He's not just looking to make you a better version of you. God is after your heart. And God desires to have a relationship with you. So when we do put other things in front of God, it's not just that we got things out of order. It's that we have been flirting with things that we shouldn't have been flirting with. That we've been snuggling up with those things that we shouldn't have been snuggling up with. The things that we desire and crave have now become too close to our heart, too intimate with us. He says we're adulterous people. Our sin is a relational issue. Our behavioral perspective alone lacks humility and wisdom and relationship. God reaches out to us so that we can know him personally. Our sin affects our relationship. Sometimes I think we try to push it as close to the line as we can. Right? If we're just looking at it as behavior, we think, well, I can behave this far and it's not sin. Right? As long as I just do that amount, it's not sin. There we've made it about behavior and not about relationship. Right? I just want to dabble just a little bit. That won't be so bad. I mean, the Bible was written a long time ago. They didn't understand how things would be in 2019. So I'm just going to let a little bit of this into my life. James says the posture of humility understands it's about a relationship with God. The last posture that we see here is humility towards the future. He talks about us making these future plans and he says, man, your life is just like a mist. It is here and it's gone. It's like the fog that rolls in and rolls out. We make these plans. We have these drives and ambitions. But we have to understand wherever our life is going, We have to surrender those things to God and let him be at the center of our plans to build the vision, to be the passion that is within us. Proverbs chapter three, verse five and six says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, 
Submit to him and he will make your path straight. Are your plans submitted to God? Are they really God's plans? James is continuing his line of challenging us here. He's telling us, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers, as he said in James chapter 1. You've got to live this out. God has a plan and a purpose for every single one of us in our future. Do we have a posture of humility that says, God, whatever you want, I want to follow your plan. And he closes James chapter 4 with this challenge. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. If you know what God wants you to do and you don't do it, James says, that's sin. That's the adultery that we commit with God. If you know what God doesn't want you to do and you keep doing it, James says, it's sin. So I want to close today's service just by asking you this one question. And then we're going to take about 90 seconds or so. I just want you to ask God, God, what is it in my life that you want me to do? And if there are things in your life that you know you should be doing, but you aren't doing, would you turn that over to God? If there are things in your life that you shouldn't be doing, but you are doing, would you turn that over to God? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we just say that we need you today. God, we submit to you our ambitions and our desires so that our relationship with you and others may be marked with love and peace. God, give us the courage to recognize you as the authority over our lives. Help us to be servants. Lord, we thank you that you sent Jesus to take our place. Maybe the first place of obedience is simply surrender for some of us to accept the price that was paid if that's you today and you just need to say God I surrender to you I encourage you to do that let's take the next minute and a half you let the Lord speak to you today
God has called us to take the path of humility. My prayer for you is that you go about your week this week, that you would know the good that you ought to do, and that you would do it. That we would live it out in every way, everywhere we go, in what we think, what we say, and what we do. Our prayer team is available. If we could pray for you before you leave this place, we'd love to. God bless you guys. Have a great week.